I saw your eyes and I saw your smile And the world opened wide And the world was inside of me And I catch my breath and I laugh and blush And I hear guitars You are so good for me Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 18, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Dave Malloy is joining us by telephone. Uh, Broadway fans know Dave, of course, as the uh, creator of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. But uh, we wanted to have Dave on to uh, talk about a uh, thing that's coming up over at Green Room 42, which uh, is going to be a fundraiser for an organization called Jack. And we'll talk about Jack in a sec in a second. And uh, Dave's going to be previewing a few songs from Moby Dick, his new show. So, Dave, thank you for joining us by telephone. We, uh, you have this little cold that's going around right now. So, uh Everybody, please forgive us if all of us cough at every now and then today. <laughs> well, yeah, hello. Thank you for thank you for having me. So, tell us uh, what's happening over at Green Room Forty Two. Um, you have this fundraiser for Jack, and you'll be playing Moby Dick. Tell us about this. Um, yeah, so so uh, I'm very excited about Jack. Uh, Jack is a little theater in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, that was founded in 2012 by my best friend uh, Alec Duffy and uh, a few other people co-founded this place. Uh, and it's this incredible little theater. You know, there's uh, 50 seats, and they do a really amazing and diverse range of programming, uh, from theater to to music to to dance to community-driven events. Um, and I think one of the things that's so singular about Jack Jack is that they're really, really community-driven and community-minded. So they've made incredible efforts to really reach out to the community of Clinton Hill and the surrounding areas and just make it really feel like a hub for that neighborhood. Um, so because of that, like they just have some of the most diverse and incredible programming, I think, in, in, in New York City. Um, and I perform there, you know, a number of times, and many of my friends have. And uh, Alex Duffy also is, is actually uh, the husband of Mimi Lien, who is the set designer for Great Comet of 1812. So uh, I'm very, very close to both of them and um yeah and they're just you know they're this little peter company that that needs a little needs a little help right now so and i'm on the board of it as well and so uh i've kind of taken on organizing this concert to to support them and to kind of introduce them to some of the some of the community that knows you know me and some of the people from great comet from the broadway community and kind of get them over to clinton hill to see what's going on over there well, that's great. The uh, the Jack website says it fuels ex experiments in arts and activism. So uh, mm -hmm. that's uh, very popular these days, mixing in arts and activism, as we've seen there. It's it's sort of like, uh, you know, Ars Nova was 15, 20 years ago. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And and I think, I mean, what, one thing that, that, that is so amazing about Jack is that they are in the middle of, you know, in the middle of Brooklyn, which is such an incredible and, you know, diverse, <laughs> diverse borough, sure. obviously. Um, so they've really, really made, you know, extreme efforts to uh, to reach out to, you know, specifically people of color and artists of color and really make sure that that is kind of the, the, um, the primary thing that they're programming. And like, you know, last year they did a whole series around reparations and um, they're just really involved in, in, in these kind of activist movements. Now you mentioned Mimi. Uh, did she do the original production of Natasha as well? Was she with it all oh, the yeah. way? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, Mimi was with us from the from the ground floor at Ars Nova. So yeah. she had to do a lot of <laughs> drawings uh, from one place to another to another. <laughs> oh my God! And you have no idea. <laughs> I don't. I, yeah, in addition to the you know the four spaces that she that she designed that actually happened, um, she probably designed another twenty or so <laughs> along the way. You know, some on cocktail napkins, um, but you know, especially when we were going from Ars Nova to Casino uh, to when we moved off Broadway, like there were a lot of different spaces we were looking at at that time and so she was you know furiously sketching all these wild versions and then we were looking at broadway as well there were a few different broadway houses we were looking at and so we had some wild renditions of what that might have looked like um, well yeah, she's incredible speaking of wild i imagine you got a lot of wild-eyed looks when you used to tell people yeah i'm adapting war and peace Sure. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people. Um, definitely, the, the 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 book has a reputation for being incredibly long. So that was always the first question: is like, is the whole thing? Which <laughs> I would then say, no, no, just a sliver. Um, which is funny because now people assume I'm doing the same thing with Moby Dick, but actually that's not the case. Moby Dick, I am actually doing the whole thing. So it's a, you a are. different, different as, take on a massive novel. Yeah. As compared to, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of Moby Dick, the musical, which uh, was done in London. And, but that I sounds like, aware of that, piece. that yeah. sounds like a very <laughs> different, it's, it's about a girl's school putting on a musical version of Moby Dick. And I don't imagine. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, that, that's a, a very, a pretty camp version of the, of the story. I mean, they definitely tell the story as well, but it's, there's a huge camp element going on in that show. And uh, that's something I've just, I've just never really been uh, a campy person. So this is a pretty, uh, pretty more, more, a more faithful in spirit, at least uh, adaption of the book. You've never well, been a campy person. Didn't you do a, <laughs> a one person version of Miss Saigon? Oh, not a one-person version. Um, <laughs> no, that was a 99-cent version. Oh, 99-cent. But actually, that was, I mean, that was, yeah. That was actually, like, a, I feel like that piece was actually, like, a, a really core part of um, creating creating the artist that I am today because that was the, the brainchild of this incredible director uh, who was out in Oakland at the time named Maya Garantz. And her idea was, was really thinking about like poor theater and like community theater and like juxtaposing that against what at the time was, you know, the most expensive Broadway musical of all time. So the idea was to do Miss Saigon with a poor theater aesthetic, um, you know, to really <laughs> do it as cheaply as possible. So we were, you know, the, we were all wearing our own clothes. We had a GI Joe helicopter on a zip line. Um, but one thing we discovered actually in creating that show was that actually, we actually really did tell the story. We actually really did do the show. And the show actually wasn't campy at all. And it was something that we discovered in the process of rehearsing it, um, that every time we like went anywhere that felt kind of campy, like we just felt like it was just like cheap jokes and it didn't really feel like it was honoring the, honoring the text and honoring the spirit of the true thing. So we really like tried in that show to really tell the story, you know, and obviously putting our own postmodern twist on it. Um, and I think that that aesthetic that I learned during that show has actually carried through all of my work since. So, you know, while War and Peace, you know, the Great Comet is certainly irreverent at times to Tolstoy, but it still really tries to honor the Tolstoy uh, and not really get campy with it, which is the same thing I'm trying to do with, with Melville. Okay. Um, my question is, um, chapter nine of Moby Dick has always fascinated me. This is the one where Father Mapple gives his speech about Jonah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have to say, when I read that, I get a very anti-religious feeling from that chapter, but nobody else seems to. Um, do you have a reading on that chapter at all? Uh, does that appear in your uh, musical? An anti-religious feeling. Wow. Um, See? Yeah. So, I, we are. No, <laughs> nobody else sees that but me. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> no, I mean, I definitely think like Melville has um, very complicated feelings towards God and certainly Ahab has incredibly complicated feelings towards yeah. him. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I feel like the, the sermon does touch on some of that. Actually, the sermon, uh, in at least as far as Moby Dick currently looks actually is what begins the show. Um, and that uh, song will in fact be one of the songs that will be premiering at the green room show. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, we do have this, we actually have a, an, an actor, um, this amazing actress, Don Troop, who plays both father Mapple and then 
She goes on to play many of the captains of the ships that uh, the Pequod encounters later on. So the captain of the Boomer and the captain of the Rachel, which becomes really important. Um, So she kind of sets the tone of we are going to go into the belly of the whale. And really, My Moby Dick has become kind of a a meditation on, uh, you know, American democracy and like what the state of American democracy in the 21st century is. Um, and just thinking about like the sins that were created to create America and, you know, just like it being built on the back of the transatlantic slave trade and things like that. And so really the, the way the sermon functions in my show is to kind of say, okay, we're going to go into that and into the belly of the whale and reflect on the sins that got us here. And, you know, is America headed towards, uh, is, is, is America like the Pequot headed towards a certain doom? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So some light stuff, some pretty mm-hmm. light stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, do you, when you are coming up with new concepts for shows, uh, are, do you sit down with Mimi and ply her with alcohol and say, this is my new show before, <laughs> you know, it's, and you have to design it, you know, type of thing. <laughs> it's, it's, you, you throw a lot of, cha- a lot of challenges towards your, uh, your creative team. Totally. I mean, that's why I, I feel like, you know, we've, I've, I feel so lucky to have crossed paths with an artist like Mimi who, I mean, I think if I came to Mimi with like, oh, this is like a, a living room drama, like she would probably turn the project down, you know what I mean? Because she is an incredible artist who thrives on challenges and just as Rachel is too, you know, I think Rachel wants to have wrestle things down to the ground that are impossible in one way or another. Um, yeah. So I feel so lucky to have those kind of collaborators in my life. Uh, just, I was wondering. You mentioned that Mimi did sketches for several possible venues for Natasha Pierre. Would one of them have been Circle in the Square? Uh, I don't know if she ever sketched that one. That was definitely a place we did a visit to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, you, you know, there was something about like there was something very tempting about Circle in the Square. But I think, I, I, honestly, going back to the last question, I think Rachel, Mimi, and I all almost felt a little bit that Circle in the Square would have been too easy. <laughs> that we actually wanted that, that really the the thing was how do we take a, a you know a proscenium broadway house and transform that and also kind of using like the the lush opulence you know of a theater like the imperial and so we looked at circle and square like oh this is just a blank slate like this would be so easy mm-hmm. and all of us were a little less interested in it, honestly because of that <laughs> well either way it would be fascinating to look at sketches of a show that in a in a venue that never actually took place that so i hope she holds on to those and maybe there'll be an exhibit someday. yeah there was i mean there was one pretty incredible version for the imperial that it was actually going to be like a bowl that one idea originally was that we were actually going to build over the entire orchestra up to the mezzanine so there would just be you know just raked seating all the way from the front of the stage all the way up to the very back of the balcony um and that just became yeah, completely unfeasible but it was a very exciting idea <laughs> which we were all somebody did that about. uh that somebody was, did the, that at the, the rap, palace uh, holler if you hear me holler yeah. if you hear me right did that right. at, yeah, the, yeah, at totally. the palace exactly. theater yeah very that similar. was really interesting yeah Although we yeah, cut yeah. cut out, you know, a good thirty, forty, fifty percent of the possible revenue there by losing the yes, that was definitely they didn't a need problem. it. They did. They, didn't <laughs> they need did not. They, they did had not plenty, need it. <laughs> had plenty of seats for what they were doing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. tell us about. Uh, I think it was this week, or maybe possibly last week, um, that we heard that uh, the Great Comet is going to go out on tour. So. Uh, do uh, do you um, get involved with? Um, uh, the re in, uh, the restaging reinterpretation the uh, artistic view of Great Comet as it goes back out to multiple venues and how does that work? Sure, I mean I'm, I'm actually learning that a little bit myself. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of you know a lot of possible things happening, but the only thing that's really kind of confirmed at this point is uh, Japan. Uh, so it is opening in Japan in January 2019, and I'm so thrilled about that. Um, and yeah, I'm actually gonna find out how involved I can be because the thing is it's it's in Japanese, so, you know, which I don't speak at all. Um, but you know, I know I know that the 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 company putting out on in Japan really wants to honor the original production. Um, you know, so I've you know sent them the original orchestrations and everything, and I look forward to to getting the translation and. Uh, looking at it with some of my my Japanese friends who can tell me <laughs> what what they've done. <laughs> uh, 
And then uh, you keep him busy. You're just back from uh, the Actors Theater of Louisville where you did Little Bunny Foo-Foo. Mm-hmm. What is Little Bunny Foo-Foo? Yes. Uh, that was an amazing little uh, children's show that we did down at Louisville, uh, written by Ann Washburn with Les Waters directing at the Actors Theater of, of Louisville. And it was like, yeah, it was exactly what it sounds like. It was an hour-long children's show based on the children's song Little Bunny Foo-Foo about Little Bunny Foo-Foo bopping to the forest, uh, you know, hopping to the forest, bopping the field, my son the head. Um, and we had 10 children playing the field mice, you know, from ages, I think, five to 11 or so. And I got to say, like doing a show with little kids is <laughs> like makes makes rehearsal and tech like the most fun thing ever because um, they were just incredible. And it was just so joyful having them in the room all the time. And my wife was also in that show. She played uh, the skink, who was kind of little bunny foo-foo's uh, friends. <laughs> so we had a really great time spending two months down in Louisville and drinking bourbon and, and doing this this wild show. And the show, the music was uh, a dear old friend of mine, a trombone player, Andy Strain, music directed it, and kind of led a sort of a jazz quartet, like a bebop quartet. Um, so it was very fun to have this kind of, you know, almost like Bugs Bunny jazz music going on for this, for this Bunny Foo Foo character. Well, you mentioned quartet, so we have to talk about Ghost Quartet, which you did at Edinburgh Fringe, and you also did in Seattle just uh, right before uh, Bunny Bunny. Mm-hmm. So tell us about Ghost uh, Adoring, actually. Yeah, yeah. Adoring. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, it was a crazy time. So and I went down to Louisville in December. We rehearsed Bunny Fufu all through that. And then right after we opened Bunny Fufu in early January, I left my wife for two weeks to, to play the skink. And then I went to Seattle for two weeks to do, to do Ghost Quartet in Seattle, um, where we had an amazing run. And the uh, you know, Seattle Theater Group hosted us, and they were incredible. And we had a great little theater, the Erickson Theater, and uh, had a really great reception. Yeah. All right. Well, you're keeping busy here. You have, uh, as we come back full circle, the Green Room 42 on April 9th, 2018, where you're going to do the Keep Jack Alive benefit concert. Uh, and you're going to be playing some uh, pieces from Moby Dick. Uh, what's Do you have a you know kind of a loose timeline in your head for Moby Dick when you'll see full productions of it? Oh, if only I knew. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, one thing we're discovering is is that it, it is kind of a massive piece so it's just the uh, the logistics and finances of, of making that show happen have, have proved more complicated than we had hoped um but we actually have you know some meetings this week with, with some theaters and uh, uh eventually it'll, it'll come to new york at the public theater so the public theater was the original commissioning uh theater for it so we're, we're kind of still shopping around to see where it will happen out of town first and so hopefully in the, in the next season or two that will that will come to fruition Awesome. Well, Dave, thank you for joining us again on Broadway Radio. We really appreciate it. Listeners can uh, see Keep Jack Alive, which is Benefit Concert at Green Room 42 on April 9th. The first show is sold out, but there is a second show added, so check that out. At the, uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes, uh, Dave. And after... I actually think there are a, a few. There are, I think there are actually a few tickets left. Or that we just released some tickets for the early show as well. So there are oh, great. a dozen or so extra tickets for that now. Yeah. Excellent. Dave, come on back and uh, chat with us when uh, you have more to tell us about Moby Dick, all right? Will do. Will do. Early Sunday morning, Natasha and I lit a candle, looked in the mirror. I see my face, don't be silly. They say you can see your future in the long row of candles, searching back and back and back. Okay, in our reviews section. Peter, you got a chance to see two shows. Uh, the first is Dogs of Rwanda and, at Urban Stages, and the second is Shakespeare's Will at Here. Uh, you found some similarities between the two of them, so we thought we'd discuss them together. So tell us about that. Yeah, these are one-man shows with two people. Uh, okay, that sounds contradictory, I'll grant you, but uh, the point is that both these shows have musicians uh, that are accompanying what's going on. Now, Dogs of Rwanda is about Rwanda, where, of course, uh, a part of the world where we know there's been a lot of difficulty. And we do have Dan Hodge talking about the experiences that Sean Christopher Lewis had while he was over there. And it takes a while before you find out where dogs are relevant, but when you do, it's extraordinarily powerful. So 
I loved listening to Dan Hodge, but I did not love listening to the musician. My point is there was a musician playing all these African instruments, especially a drum, and I found it very, very obtrusive. And um, I, I wished that the musician were not there at all. Partly, too, to be perfectly frank, I thought he was really trying to steal the show. There was a lot of look-at-me feeling from this musician. So I wanted to hear the story. I didn't want to hear what was going on uh, with the drums. And similarly speaking, at here, that's a theater that's um, <clears throat> near Spring Street, at least that's the subway stop I take uh, to get there, there's a marvelous actress named Tannis Kowalczyk who is – playing Anne Hathaway. I don't mean Anne Hathaway from Les Miserables. I mean Anne Hathaway, the original wife of uh, William Shakespeare. And while the show is only 70 minutes, she's very galvanizing in what she's doing, but she too has a musician behind her playing music. And I found that obtrusive as well, especially during a scene where she's reading a sonnet of Shakespeare. Now, I think a lot of people have trouble um, understanding Shakespeare. I wish that weren't the case, but I do believe that to be true. And the music makes it even harder to understand what Tannis Kowalczyk is saying. So I wish that the payroll would be um, halved or at least diminished and that these people would just go out there and say what they have to say because they're very powerful when they're doing it. I, I do feel some problems with Verinthesen's play, Shakespeare's Will, and specifically when uh, William Shakespeare, early in uh, their marriage, decides to leave and go to London and leave her in Stratford-on-Avon. I have no idea why it never comes up that she go with him. <clears throat> it comes up much later, much later, uh, when he's reasonably successful. And um, but it's there's no good reason given why she, in those whither thou goest times that she's not goeth. Um, so I found that very very strange, and I wish that hadn't happened. But you do find out that her father was aghast that she was marrying this guy. For one thing, he was young. Um, for one thing, he was a Shakespeare. Uh, the family didn't have a good reputation, apparently. And, of course, being an actor, are you kidding me? You know, so, so I do think that the homework that Verinthesen did was very, very potent, but I would have liked to know why he wasn't taking her in the first place. When she finally does say, I want to go with you, there's a very interesting reason why he apparently doesn't want her to go. So... Um, Wonderful, wonderful performance. I really think she is endearing beyond belief. But, whoa, can we please get rid of the music? You know, I saw um, – I'm not sure if it was a press release or, or a, an ad for the show, but it's it said something to the effect of Anne Hathaway returns. Why, no. <laughs> and I know. I, that, was, and, that was sneaky, very sneaky. Yeah, but it did lead me to uh, ponder. I wonder if Anne Hathaway will return to live theater. <laughs> I don't know. She seems kind of busy. Matt, sure uh, Matt Tamanini and I went back and forth when uh, we saw that press release too uh, – and we <laughs> thought that that was a very Wasn't tricky it? press release. <laughs> but it got us all to read it. It sure yeah, did. <laughs> it sure did. But fool me once, shame on you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, that is Dogs of Rwanda and Shakespeare's Will, which is down at here. Dogs of Rwanda at the Urban Stages. We'll have links to that in the show notes. Michael, uh, yes. you got to the... You know what? Uh, I'm totally blank here. Where is Margaritaville playing? Marquee Theater. It's at the Marquee. That's right, the Marriott Marquee. Uh, uh, and did you bring a shaker of salt with you? Because uh, this Jimmy Buffett music uh, uh, features uh, margaritas sold in the back of the theater. So uh, tell us, what was your experience at Margaritaville? Well, first of all, full disclosure, in this uh, instance, for the first time that I can remember, there was free booze for the press. <laughs> we talked about that on Broadway, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was appreciated. Um, uh, yes, Escape to Margaritaville, music and lyrics by Jimmy Buffett, book by Greg Garcia and Mike O'Malley, who uh, have mostly – TV credits, uh, directed by Christopher Ashley, choreographed by Kelly Devine. And um, I have to mention, uh, not 
failed to mention music supervision, vocal and incidental music arrangements, and additional orchestrations by Christopher Janke, because he did a really, really yeoman work on this show. Um, like so many <laughs> uh, current Broadway shows, uh, this is one that is obviously not geared towards me as its audience. It It is geared towards fans of Jimmy Buffett. Um, I am I myself am not a parrot head by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, I didn't even know that term <laughs> until a few days ago. This is the, the name for uh, uh, hardcore fans of Jimmy Buffett. Um, I that said, I really enjoyed this show much more than I expected to. I think that the book, uh, the there is a lot more book to it than I would have expected. Um, Greg Garcia and Mike O'Malley, I think they might have condensed uh, a little bit in terms of the action and maybe the number of characters. But it's very fun and light. Um, it's full of puns, many of them specific references to Buffett's lyrics. For example, the the legendary lost shaker of salt uh, that's mentioned in the in the song Margaritaville. That is uh, that becomes uh, the brunt of a, a pun or two or three. And um I think, uh, it, well, like Mamma Mia, th this is an example of a show where a book musical is retrofitted to fit a song catalog. But I have to say I enjoyed this show much more than Mamma Mia because I thought it was lighter and funnier and just um, less stupid. I, I, I don't know. I, I thought there was a, some kind of wit and intelligence going on in the book. Uh, and I think that the way that it was directed uh, by uh, Christopher Ashley, I think he did a really good job in keeping it moving. And the choreography is just what you'd expect. Um, there's a similarity to Mamma Mia also in the, in the sense that it's about romantic entanglements in an idyllic, exotic setting. In this case, it's the Caribbean. Uh, although there are a, a couple of scenes set in Cincinnati where uh, two of the vacationing women who are the main characters come from. Uh, the central character here is a guy named Tully, and it was very smart, uh, if maybe a little obvious, to make him. He's a singer-songwriter uh, who works at a uh, with the house band at a bar in Margaritaville, and he's very laid-back dude, bro kind of guy who uh, sleeps around, frankly, with a lot of the women who come to vacation at the resort. And so you're, you're probably going to know from the beginning that uh, – that part of the plot is going to be about whether Tully winds up uh, hooking up for good and settling down with one of these women. Um, he, I am happy to say, is played by Paul Alexander Nolan, who is really um, a very, very talented guy who's already a Broadway veteran. Uh, he, I think he made a great impression with his singing, acting, and musicianship in, uh, for example, in Once as a replacement uh, as the guy in Once, and also in Bright Star and Zhivago and Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, he was also in Daddy Longlegs off Broadway. So he's really been um, quite busy lately, and I, and I can understand why. He, uh, he's, he, he hails from Canada, but he's become quite the Broadway presence. Um, and... It was also very smart of Christopher Ashley and the production team here to get some other uh, really impressive Broadway veterans in this show. We have Lisa Howard, uh, best known probably from Spelling Bee and It Should Have Been You. Uh, we also have Allison Luff, Eric Peterson, Rima Webb, Don Sparks, and Andre Ward. Um, so all of the uh, Buffett songs that fans would hope to hear are present and and more, including a couple of new songs. But the ones that everyone will be waiting for include Margaritaville, Cheeseburger in Paradise, It's Five O'Clock Somewhere, Why Don't We Get Drunk, parentheses, and Screw. Uh, we are the people our parents warned us about. These are, these are some of the songs. Uh, I, there's a lot of um, humor about casual sex and drinking in this show. So if you have problems with either of those things, you might not find it so amusing. But everyone else, uh, certainly the audience, seemed to be having a great time. Uh, there's definitely a party atmosphere in the theater. Uh, and, you know, uh, as I mentioned, 
uh, margaritas are readily available. So that that certainly feeds into that. Um, something that could be an issue for some audience members is that there are uh, several moments where spontaneous sing-alongs spring up in the audience. Now, I went to a critic's performance, so it was kind of uh, – it, it wasn't too bothersome in that case it, it, because people weren't uh, weren't that raucous or out of control. But I could see that becoming a big issue on on really raucous nights. Uh, if So if, if you – if you come to hear the performers and not the audience, that that really might be an issue. What were some of the uh, other? Uh, oh, um, Motown. Uh, I remember that was an issue in that show. Do you remember that? Uh, do you guys remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and th- I, I guess that's just a new reality that uh, that we have to expect to face when we see shows like this. And so, really, uh, your your individual tolerance for that is going to have a a, a huge bearing on how much you enjoy this show. Um, one, one thing I'll say for it is, is that it was not over amplified. I was really kind of worried that this might be ear splitting, but um, I guess it's actually not that kind of music. J- uh, Jimmy Buffett is a little more uh, laid back. Uh, it's not, you know, acid rock or, or heavy metal or anything like that. Uh, I really appreciated that it was not over amplified. I think that the director and the choreographer, um, as I said, they really keep the action going and and it has just the right tone uh that it should have uh it, it doesn't it rarely gets serious uh which i think one of, it was one of the issues with mama mia sometimes trying to to you know find more there there than there really is um I think the show could have been maybe a half hour shorter, even while keeping the intermission. They obviously were not going to cut the intermission because the drink sales is uh-huh. so important to them that, in fact, uh, one of the press releases for the show uh, focused on the fact that one night they supposedly ran out of triple sec for their margaritas. Uh, so they are you know, making no bones that that is very much part of the experience. It would be interesting to see the show with someone who doesn't drink <laughs> and see what they think of it. Um, and uh, oh, here's one final thing I would mention. I, I had heard and read that Jimmy Buffett, uh, um, I think more than once, made actual appearances in the show during previews at the end of the show. Um, I, I think at least once or twice he came on and did a, a song or two. And I um, just think that I, I wonder if that might backfire because if if fans have heard that he has done that, uh, they may be expecting him to do it at every performance and he didn't, he is not doing it at every performance. And in fact, rather surprisingly, he did not appear at the critics performance that I saw. So I, I wonder if that is an expectation that has been raised. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much, uh, you know, publicity that got and how many people read about it and are counting on it. But uh, it'll be interesting to see also what kind of legs, the, you know, the show has um, in that theater and how long it lasts. And I, I am told uh, and have read that Jimmy Buffett does have a huge fan base. Uh, so that doesn't always translate to Broadway, but we will see if it does in this case. Well, of course, the reviews were putrid, and under those circumstances, I think they may use your quotation on the side of the theater, less stupid than Mamma Mia. Um, <laughs> it really was, though. I really think it was. I uh, Mamma Mia annoyed me tremendously because I thought it was completely witless, whereas this show, it, it really has some fun moments in it, and I think the book could have been – far worse. It does sound like I'm damning with faint praise, doesn't it? Well, the thing is with uh, with Jimmy Buffett appearing on stage, uh, if the, the true fans are coming to the show uh, and they have had enough margaritas by the end of the show, you can tell them that Jimmy was actually there, but they don't know. Uh, so that's the magic of Broadway theater. Uh, a few things to mention here. Um, we actually talked to Paul I- Paul Alexander Nolan a few years ago uh, on This yes. Week on Broadway, uh, and we'll link to that in the show notes. He's uh, he's really a, a tremendously talented, very nice person. Um, and uh, I think one of the things that um, 
is happening here with Escape to Margaritaville is that they put together a a Broadway team for this. You know, Christopher Ashley. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. It's uh, they're talking about people that are really well familiar with how things work on Broadway. Um, and they didn't come in and try to teach Broadway how to do it. They partnered with Broadway to make Escape to Margaritaville. And I think that that shows there. You know, Mike O'Malley might not have uh, Broadway credits to his name, but Mike is also uh, he's a brother of Kerry O'Malley. We all know yes, Kerry. Yeah, I was uh, going to mention that. No, he has some really great credits, and so does Greg Garcia. They, they are, uh, more, as I said, I guess more TV. Uh, yeah. Mike but, has got but, t- but yeah, what? go on. Mike's no, go got on. two off-Broadway plays. I, I was going to ask if you guys had seen them. One of them is uh, Three Years from 30. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, and Diverting uh, Diverting Devotion uh, played off – both of these played off-Broadway. Uh, and uh, Mike has got quite uh, wonderful self-deprecating uh, humor there. Uh, he A couple of years ago in the Boston Globe, there was a uh, – uh, a t- he does a lot of acting on television and on TV. Some reviewers said he's got a face that is like a doorstop. And uh, they took his picture and made it into doorstops and sold them for uh-huh. uh, for charity and things like that. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I tell you, that O'Malley family, they're uh, quite talented. Quite, quite yes. talented. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Uh, let's move forward into um, our next review or group of reviews. Uh, Peter also got a chance to see two other shows, uh, Admissions at Lincoln Center and Education at 59 each, East 59. And these two also have similar things about them that we'd like to talk about together. So, Peter, what did you think? Oh, I, I like them both very much. Admissions is a play about um, a woman who has power at uh, a, a very prestigious prep school to admit whomever she feels uh, is the most worthy candidate. However, uh, we are in an era of affirmative action, and as a result, she is uh, very concerned about changing the white face of the school into a more diverse face. And she's very proud of the fact that when she got there, 6% of the uh, student body was um, – of color, and uh, she's getting it up there. She might even get up to 20%, which makes her very happy. Okay, fine, wonderful, good goals, aren't they? However, in her own family, she has a son who's applied to Yale, and he's on a waiting list, while his best friend, who's half black, has been accepted. And so the question becomes, is she hoisted on her own petard? Um, the fact that she's doing this type of selection and giving uh, definite uh, approval and um, to the minorities and feels very good about herself doing that, now she doesn't feel as good about the fact that her son is actually a victim of what she's been doing all along. So that is a terrific idea for a play, and it's beautifully done. I have to say that I am very, very proud of Joshua Harmon for doing the right thing in making virtually, virtually every argument a sensational one that you really say, yeah, he's right, no, she's right, no, he's right. Everybody Mm -hmm. comes up. There was only one character who's a little silly at the beginning, played by Sally Murphy. Um, I'm not faulting her. It's the way the character is portrayed at the beginning. But as time goes on, she will certainly have pungent arguments as well. She's the mother of the um, half-black child. So um, tremendous, tremendous performances. Um, Jessica Heck works all the time, but I've never seen her better than she is here playing the mother of the boy who's on the waiting list. But, but Ben Edelman as Charlie, the son. Oh my God. Whoa, whoa. Is he powerful? Especially he has a tremendous speech about what he plans to do under the circumstances of what's happened to him. And uh, boy, fireworks do erupt and we really see who's who and what's what and what people really and truly believe. And but what's really great is the intelligence of every character and uh, the way they really butt heads. You, You really 
say, oh, yeah, I see your point. And uh, that's very, very effective. So that's one story about education. And then there's another story about education, which is called Education by Brian Dykstra, uh, Dykstra who um, I know very well as an actor, uh, gave one of the best performances I saw in my New Jersey years at the Star Ledger playing Eddie Carbone in View from the Bridge. Phenomenal performance. But he's a terrific writer as well. And um, I don't know if she's his wife or his girlfriend, but Margaret Perry is a director and she usually directs what he does and has done so here and very well indeed. Now, the issue here uh, is that uh, we are dealing with a student, Wesley T. Jones plays him beautifully, and uh, he's butting heads with Bruce Falk, um, who is the principal of the school. The problem is that there has been an incident uh, in which uh, he wants to uh, burn a flag, uh, the, needless to say, the young man, and uh, as a, a self-expression move. And, of course, the principal takes issue with this. Now, it's not as simple as it seems, because what really happens here is the principal really understands where the kid is coming from. His point is, as you get older, you realize that uh, there are certain things you must compromise with in life. So while he sees his point, he is going to be a hard ass as a principal. Now, what's really interesting about the principal is that he abuses his power terribly. And as somebody who used to teach in high school and had uh, a, a, um, a headmaster who literally said at a faculty meeting, and if I were in that room right now, I could take you within a quarter inch of where I was sitting because I was so shocked by it. We've got to nail these kids to a cross. Um, this is the type of mentality that uh, this character has in education. He, uh, And it's just so sad when you see people abusing power, and especially when they're adults and they're dealing with kids because they, they have more experience in life, needless to say. And under those circumstances, they're able to come up with more glib answers than they've been – uh, they've been um, in so many situations in the past where they've had kids come to their office and they know the answers and they know what to say. And uh, the kids, of course, don't have the vocabulary. They don't have the life experience. So they're at um, they're at a real disadvantage. However, the character played by Wesley T. Jones is smarter than the average bear, believe me. And um, so he really gives the guy a run for his money. So again, another wonderful thing is the fact <clears throat> that we are dealing with intelligence here. What we're also dealing with is that um, the character played by Wesley T. Jones does not live with his mother or father. They have died, and he's living with an uncle who is very, very uh, liberal and very understanding of where this boy is coming from. And he'll go to bat for him when he goes into the principal's office. And now the principal has a harder time of it, of course, because now he's dealing with an adult. So those scenes are really uh, very powerful as well. Um, the the um, uncle, by the way, um, is white. Uh, so that adds another layer as well. Um, let me also mention Jane West, um, who plays his girlfriend, and she gets herself into trouble, too, with uh, a few various things. And um, so you add her into the mix with a girlfriend. And, of course, girlfriends have opinions. And uh, and these two are very, uh, very carnal with each other. And uh, they have a very nice chemistry. Uh, both Jane West and Wesley Jones. So uh, so really, another play with no easy answers, but with lots of intelligence. And you would think a play called Education certainly would be intelligent. And Brian Dykstra has risen to the occasion and written something extraordinarily powerful. All right. So we'll uh, have links to admissions and education in the show notes uh, at broadwayradio.com. Michael, you got a chance to see Cheetah at uh, Feinstein's 54 Below. So tell us about that. Yeah, on Wednesday, March 14th, I, I've seen her solo act many times in recent years, but I have to say this was one of the best ever. There was just an electricity in the room, uh, packed house, including Ben Vereen, uh, someone with whom Cheetah has worked. And she did um, a great program of uh, uh, many songs I've heard before and some new ones. The show songs included A Lot of Living to Do from Bye Bye Birdie, um, A Boy Like That and America from West Side Story, Where Am I Going from Sweet Charity, Camille Colette and Fifi from Seventh Heaven, mm -hmm. uh, Winter and Love and Love Alone from The Visit, 
and nowadays and all that jazz from Chicago. One of the most fascinating things about Cheetah, I, I think, uh, I don't know if I've ever actually said this before, is she has worked so much in the theater that um, she had a lot of flops along the way, obviously not her fault. Uh, but, and I think she maybe even had, if you, if you, if you total them up, more flops than hits. But because she worked so often, um, there are these iconic shows that I, that I just mentioned that, that are on her resume. And she really is one of the greats, one of the all time greats of musical theater. And this was a masterful performance. Uh, she is, is so completely at home on stage now and, and brings the audience into the experience. Uh, she's as good in a cabaret setting as she is in a regular uh, stage mu musical. And if you haven't seen Cheetah in a club a cabaret setting, I urge you to do so. She's performed in many. Uh, she has been at Birdland. She was at the old Feinsteins at the Regency. And she's just a force of nature. It's it's so such a privilege to see her perform. And um, as it worked out, I, I didn't actually plan this uh, so much uh, it wasn't in the forefront of my mind, but I, the night after I saw Cheetah, original cast member of West Side Story, at Feinstein's 54 Below, I went to see a production of West Side Story at the Professional Performing Arts School, uh, High School on 48th Street. And it was really kind of uh, amazing and, and so moving to me to see the torch passed in that way. Uh, this was an incredible, really amazing, superb production of West Side Story that I, um, I, I've been seeing a couple of the shows there uh, over the past few years because I'm, I'm acquainted with uh, Brad Siebeking, who's the music director and also the producer. Um, and then I also know somewhat... Uh, uh, somewhat less, uh, Kyle Pleasant, who is the director and choreographer. And they did a ragtime two years ago that was amazing. And then last year they did How to Succeed. And this West Side Story was was just beyond belief. I'll have to give you the names of the leads because I think <laughs> I think all of them will be heard from again. Jacob Sutton as Tony, Gabriela Mejias, the, the Maria of One's Dreams, Anthony Garcia as Bernardo, uh, Cristina Jimenez as a, an indelible Anita, a very different uh, type uh, and uh than you than you may have been used to seeing in that role, but she was so so moving. I, it always helps when you have kids who can do it to have kids who are roughly the age of that the characters are supposed to be, which is I guess te really teenagers, maybe maybe early twenties. Uh, and then uh, Drew Menard is Riff, um, just a superb dancer. Uh, this this was just a, a revelation. I, I I am so glad that I went. Uh, even having been prepared by the excellence of the, those other two shows that I saw, um, those other two shows are not dance shows, really. Uh, uh, certainly not Ragtime and even How to Succeed, not so much. But this one, uh, I guess I was mostly blown away by the incredible level of the performance of the choreography. Um, just just really, really brilliant. And, um, it's, it's, it's over. It was only, uh, one weekend of performances. So I unfortunately can't recommend that you see it unless who knows, maybe they'll bring it back again. It was, it, it was worth it. Just superb. Uh, Michael, uh, mm. I'm going to use a lyric, uh, here. Um, I may trump your ace because, um, <laughs> ha, you talk about the fact that the kids were the correct age. Okay. I went to Westfield High School to see kids do follies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. I wow. understand. While sitting there, you could. Everybody's entitled to sing one of Sally's lines, which is "Why am I here? This is crazy." It was phenomenal beyond belief. Really? Wow. 
amazing. They have a terrific director there named Daniel Devlin, uh, who um, I saw a few years ago do Anyone Can Whistle, and that's why um, I had to go see this one. A terrific choreographer named Samantha Simpson. And, of course, there's a lot of choreography in Follies. And um, the kids were really up to the task. And, you know, it's not such a crazy idea to do it in high school, and I'm going to tell you why. For one thing, think of all the um, the ghosts of the Weissman girls. Right. Uh, and when you think of them, were the real Weissman girls, uh, the real Ziegfeld girls, so to speak, that much older than high school kids? In fact, the famous Doris Eaton Travis, uh, who lived to be 106 years mm-hmm. old, to show up at uh, Easter Bonnet competitions, um, was 14 when she started. So actually, the girls in this cast were probably older. You know, So that's one thing that makes it um, good for high schools. Another thing, you know, it's really nice that uh, so many kids get a chance to shine because, you know, there you have uh, Paris and there you have Broadway Baby and I'm Still Here. And the girl who did I'm Still Here, I'm telling you, did it unlike anybody I have ever seen. Margaret Bergen is her name. And she didn't steal from anybody. And it was so amazing when she got to the lyric, then you career from career to career, when it was like it just occurred to her, wait a minute, you know, there's another meaning to the word career. And I'm telling you, the thought processes here were just amazing. Also, a 27-piece orchestra, which they have all the time, and they mix it between students. There were 14 students, and there were 13 pros, and the orchestra sounded really quite wonderful. Um, The other thing, uh, it was amazing how Devlin was able to cast so many people who looked like the older and younger counterparts. That was amazing to me. You know, he had freshmen and sophomores for the most part as the young people and um, juniors and seniors as the older people. I'll grant you this is the only production of Follies I have ever seen where uh, Ben wore braces on his teeth, you know, I mean, because he's a kid. But uh, Matt Meixner was really, really good at this. And so were um, uh, Julian Mazzola as Buddy Plummer. They were really, really sensational and they really put on the years and uh by the way it was very nice to see um that the lyric turning gray in um don't look at me was really uh followed because they didn't overdo the gray in the hair they made it salt and pepper because mm-hmm. they want to make the kids look ridiculous all right um, and the other thing about um follies for kids that really um i think is very worthwhile is it has a lot of messages that i think maybe um kids should learn at an early age so um but i cannot let this go without talking about how magnificent Kimberly Zimmerman was as Phyllis and um, Emma Chacal was as Sally. Both quite wonderful and boy, the heat fire that Emma got out of um, losing my mind was really, really sensational. And it was really great at the beginning when she's the first to arrive, you recall. And of course, there are all those ghosts walking around and she was so good at not seeing those ghosts that I think it really helped the audience to um, really understand that there were ghosts there and they weren't real people. And it's good to get established that right away, needless to say. Now, a couple of funny things that um, incidental to all this, and that is um, every time I've gone to Westfield, this is my third time, I've uh, had one ticket, and I assumed I was going to get one ticket. So uh, when I got there, I found out they gave me two tickets, and I thought, well, maybe I should turn one in, you know. And, and, you know so I went to the box office, and I said, are you sold out? And uh, the woman said, uh, no, we're about 50% full. And I thought, yep, that's Follies. 50%, that's about the best <laughs> Follies ever does. <laughs> And needless to say, an intermission, the two people sitting next to that empty seat um, left. Again, you know, a lot of people just don't respond to Follies and never will. Uh, But boy, I wish this uh, were running next weekend because um, I would love people to see it. And I saw the first performance and there wasn't a false move. Everybody was raring to go and they took it seriously. And uh, I, I will never forget it as long as I live. Well, I imagine if you see a, a, a good production of Follies with young people like that, it might have some of the same resonance that the original production of Merrily We Roll Along was intended. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That whole concept of, of young people, you know, an idealism and romanticism and, and, and looking ahead and then, you know, seeing what becomes of them in real life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would seem to be an impossibility to pull off and it would seem to be a strange choice. And by the way, 
I hope Daniel Devlin doesn't get in trouble because um, Follies is um, has some frank language. Uh, the word goddamn is used more than once. And um, so uh, I hope that uh, nobody, uh, no parent really uh, rails at this. And I hope they see the achievement that went on here and uh, also realize that there are some good lessons to be learned. Um, you know, uh, when you think of it, kids are more sophisticated than they were in 1971. And, you know, you know that famous line in, in Vanya, I don't mean Uncle Vanya, I mean Chris Durang's Vanya, where he talks about uh, when I saw uh, Goldfinger as a teenager, the pussy galore reference went over my head today. Three-year-olds get it. Well, (laughs) so really, um, the kids here, I think a lot of these kids have already gone through acrimonious relationships on their own and have had fights with their boyfriends or girlfriends, and they could bring that to what was going on here between um, Buddy and Sally and Ben and Phyllis. So... um, terrific so once again you know i mean phyllis diller once made a joke uh which was i flew an airline so cheap that instead of showing a movie they put on a high school play it's a great (laughs) joke it's a great joke however high school plays have come a long long way since phyllis diller made that joke in 1970 amen i just uh you look at the Jimmy Awards and the and the yeah. various other other high school um, other high school theater organizations that have flourished throughout the nation uh, from sea to shining sea. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, so one and now thing. we have a new TV show about that, which maybe we'll discuss in the future because uh, I have my thoughts on it, but we'll see. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, you know back. Back in the Margaritaville thing, I forgot to mention that uh, Michael Malley was in Glee. Yes. So yes. Uh, He's also yeah. an actor who's turned up on a lot of shows. Exactly. All right, Peter, you got to the Axis Theater Company to see uh, their production of High Noon, which is based on the uh, 1952 film. So tell us about this. It's not much like the 1952 film, even to the point of which that they changed the names. Um, I don't know really why, but they did. And I, well, I guess I do know why. I guess the reason is they want to show that this was uh, a variation on a theme. This does not look like uh, the movie at all in any way, shape or form. It's uh, done in a small theater and uh, there's virtually no set, but it's um, very much stark. And um, the people who walk around almost seem like zombies. And, uh, well, you know, a lot's happening here. If you know High Noon, um, it's it's a, a movie in which Gary Cooper is uh, about to retire. And wouldn't you know that somebody he made leave town some years ago is coming back. And um, he's not looking forward to uh, his returning. And the, the man who's returning is certainly looking forward to coming back and straightening out Gary Cooper. So, um, so that doesn't quite happen here. One of the most interesting things about this um, production is that we find out that uh, Gary Cooper isn't uh, the Gary Cooper character. Um, <clears throat> so um, he's called Marshall Will Barnan here, and Brian Barnhart is very effective in the role. But uh, the, the, maybe he's not as innocent as we uh, think he might be, and uh, maybe the killer isn't such a, uh, a terrible man uh, as, as we've been led to believe either. So, uh, and in fact, the townspeople are sort of interested in, well, of course they're interested, but I mean, um, they're, they, they, they don't seem to necessarily be on the same side as, uh, as our hero. So, you know, I, it's, 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 a, it, there are more shadings here than, um, there are in the original film. And I think that really is something that, uh, is to be admired here. The attempt to show that, um, High Noon, though it's it's a very well regarded movie and you know won Oscars and all that kind of business uh, here and there. It, it, it maybe it's a little too pat, and this one isn't pat, and it's very eerie. It's only ab- about um, sixty five seventy minutes long, but you know something, <laughs> the movie isn't much longer. The movie's one of the shortest major films of all time. It only is eighty five minutes, so uh, you're not getting so cheated in terms of times what's going on there. But if you were to walk into this room. And uh, you didn't know what you were seeing. And somebody said, okay, what famous movie is this? It would take you a long time before you would say High Noon. A long time indeed. So uh, so very good performances, um, especially I, I really enjoy 
side, um, um, a, a lady of the evening, uh, played by Bridget Jenelin. And um, I also thought that um, a judge, um, the, the judge of the town, who uh, certainly has uh, a good deal to do, uh, Spencer Astis, his name, was uh, really good as well. But um, uh, well, to be fair, too, Kate Rose Summerfield um, as the wife, uh, the sheriff's wife, is um, very potent as well. So um, eerie. Eerie, that's the word for it more than anything else. Uh, surrealistic, impressionistic, all those things. Um, so it only runs through March 24th, but uh, if you can fit it in, you know, what I think should, High Noon should be is a midnight show. Uh, it almost has that eeriness. And so to play it at high midnight as opposed to high noon, I think would be a very good idea. So um, that's my vote that they bring it back uh, sometime and just do midnight shows. Uh, you'd be out by one fifteen, and um, and it would be very good for that time of night. All right. Since the Axis Theater Company owns their own space down at One Sheridan Square, perhaps they could do a midnight show and keep other things going during uh, more traditional times of the day. Oh, sorry. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap up for today and get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you could subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us. Uh, Stitcher Places, Google Play, anywhere that you can find finer podcasts, you can get Broadway Radio shows. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, did we have more success in this week's trivia question? Oh, did we ever? <laughs> <laughs> well, the question was, what Tony-winning musical was so successful that Milton Bradley actually made a board game out of it? Oh, people had a good time with this one. Richard Brennan asked if I meant Annie, the Path to Happiness board game. No, that was a Parker Brothers game. No, Milton <laughs> Bradley actually released a game of how to succeed in business without really trying, which Phil Bond knew and was the first to get it, followed by Doug Strassler, Jeff Valenga, Robert Lobiondo, who also pointed out that there was a My Fair Lady game, but not by Milton Bradley. Jack Leshner, who also pointed out there was a Kismet game, but not by Bill Milton Bradley. Ed Glazier got it, too, and so did Josh Israel, Robbie Roselle, Rick Wilson, and John Moss. Richard Brennan eventually found the answer, but en route, he found out that there was a Les Mis game, but he felt it was really based on the novel and not the musical. He also found a Grease game by Milton Bradley, but that wouldn't answer my question because I did say what Tony-winning musicals, and Grease <laughs> didn't win Tony. Um, it lost to Two Gentlemen of Verona, as, of course, did Follies. By the way, John Guare, the librettist lyricist of Two Gents, told me that during the Tony race, he truly believed that his show wouldn't win or that Follies wouldn't win. He thought that Grease would win, which makes us wonder, for all the squawking we all do about Follies losing to Two Gents, could it be that it didn't even finish second? Did Grease finish second? We have to wonder. Rob Johnson asked if the Annie Oakley game, which debuted in 1950, would count. But Annie Get Your Gun didn't win a Tony's Best Musical, although it would have if the Tonys were around and giving Best Musical prizes back then. Pat Payne said there was a high school musical game, but that hasn't won a Best Musical Tony either. And I dare say it wouldn't if it were to play Broadway, but he got the answer as well. Phil Bond, by the way, then fantasized about other musicals that can inspire games. He said chess was too obvious, but maybe Fiorello, politics and poker. Evita, the art of possible climbing up the ladder to be the first lady of Argentina. Golden Rainbow, match four Edies and win the jackpot. Pacific Overtures, be the first to open up Japan. Anastasia could be a riff on to tell the truth. Contestant number one, what is your name, please? My name is Anastasia Romanoff. Contestant number two, my <laughs> name is Anastasia Romanoff. But my favorite was, he said, um, a game of Into the Woods would be the if you're the first to collect all four things, you become pregnant. So that was uh, <laughs> uh, quite a quite a response to uh, the question. I hope I'll get as many this week when I ask this question. What song from a notorious musical flop of 1958 had a song whose title could describe the golden theater right now? Hmm. All right. So uh, if you know the answer to this one, uh, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. 
I'm surprised that Hamilton doesn't have a board game yet. Yeah, good point. Maybe it doesn't. We don't know about it. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then you had uh, Ken Davenport's board game, How to Be a Broadway Producer. Sure, sure. All right. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. It seems to me that this comet feels me, feels my softened and I.